From Bloomberg Law, this is Uncommon Law. I'm Adam Allington. We have a jury in the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, who is charged with the murder of George Floyd. The next step in the trial happens with opening statements on Monday, March 29th. Obviously, no one knows for sure how any jury will react to the facts that are presented during the trial, especially in a case involving police, and even more so when the case involves race. Many legal experts have noted that Chauvin's jury is fairly racially diverse given the population of Hennepin County itself. Of the 15 jurors, including three alternates, nine are white, four are black, and two are mixed race. Hennepin County is Minnesota's most populous county, of which about 13.5% are African American. But still, others have noted that the process of seating that jury, and this applies to other cases as well, tends to discriminate against the perspective of most African Americans. With me here to talk about this is Andrew Gordon. He's a public defense attorney who represents indigent clients at the Legal Rights Center based in Minneapolis. Mr. Gordon, thanks for joining me. My first question is straightforward enough. What were your initial thoughts about this jury? Did anything stand out with the selection process? A number of things stood out to me, but I think to start off with your initial question, kind of what my initial thoughts were, is that this is as the process worked exactly as advertised in this particular case. And to the extent that we are trying to sit as fair a jury as we can, this is likely the best that we were going to be able to do in Hennepin County especially given the circumstances. And I think there are reasons why we actually ended up with a far more diverse jury than you otherwise would see. Uh, but to, to answer your second question then, what stood out? Um, I think the diversity of the jury stands out, right? Because it stands in stark contrast to what you would typically see in a Hennepin County District Courtroom. Given that the jury selection was being broadcast live, I think a lot of non-attorneys were introduced to what it looks like to be interrogated by attorneys and judges and to be part of the jury process. I think it's also fair to say that some of these prospective jurors get put through the ringer a bit. They have to field questions from the attorneys or the judge. They have to probe any kind of disposition or biases they may have against Derek Chauvin. And something that struck me was just how honest many of their responses were. Here's Judge Cahill with a prospective juror. Let me just ask you straight out. Do you think you could presume the defendant innocent? <laughs> and not try, but actually could. No. I, I'm, okay. I'm almost sick to my stomach right now. Okay. Well, you know what? I'm going to alleviate that because I'm going to excuse you from this panel. I appreciate panel. it. And so if you could give the paper... So, Andrew, one thing we saw over and over in the selection process was Chauvin's lawyer moving to strike jurors of color based on their own admitted biases or lived experiences when it came to police. Is that problematic? I mean, you know, as a defense attorney myself, uh, I can certainly understand where Chauvin's attorney, Eric Nelson, was coming from. And the idea of, I think, for any defense attorney is that you are trying to, you're not necessarily trying to seat an impartial and fair jury, right? You're trying to seat a jury that will find your client not guilty. And, and to that end, Eric Nelson is doing his job and is trying to do his job as well as he can. Um, the, process it's, the process itself is flawed. And so you, you kind of hit the nail on the head when you talked a little bit of, earlier in your question about lived experiences, where individuals whose lived experiences had put them in a position where they had strong opinions about things that were important to this case specifically, 
were tossed aside, right? And I, I think the jury process generally in the state and then in this country, I think routinely fails defendants because it fails to take into consideration um, that we get to better outcomes by having a diversity of experience and a diversity of opinions and a diversity of lived experiences in the pursuit of truth, right? Instead, what we're left with is we're left with a very weird kind of definition of fair, impartial, and unbiased. And it leaves us with individuals who don't have strong opinions on the things that they really should have strong opinions about. And I think that's the key flaw in the way the system currently is set up. And you saw that in the jury selection for the trial of Derek Chauvin. This is obviously particularly difficult in a case that's received so much publicity, especially the viral video of George Floyd gasping for breath while Officer Chauvin pressed his knee into his neck. This was something many jurors, like this African-American woman, said she just couldn't put aside when questioned by defense attorney Eric Nelson. Are you willing or are you able to set what you know about this case now aside and judge this case based upon the evidence in court. Like I mentioned before, there's video surveillance, so I can't unsee the video, so I'm not able to set that part aside. What if I were to tell you that there's a fairly high probability that that video that you've already seen is going to be evidence in this case? So you're going to see it again? Um, it's, it's still going to be traumatizing to me. Okay. In her pretrial questionnaire, this woman wrote that she cried hearing Floyd call for his mother during his last minutes of life. She was later struck for cause. Andrew, should it be the case that someone who admits to holding strong opinions on a subject shouldn't be able to sit on a jury? You would think so, right? It, it, it shouldn't be that the existence of a bias, or in this case, like a strong opinion, should be a disqualifying factor for a potential juror. Right. So if you know, I'm a black man, I, I, I wasn't born and raised in the U.S., but I certainly moved here and have lived here now actually the majority of my life in this country. I've had negative experiences with law enforcement. Uh, and some of those negative experiences, I think, were particularly traumatizing given the context of those situations, especially for someone like me. And I can carry that particular bias because of my lived experiences into a courtroom and I think still be able to make a determination of, of someone's guilt or not guilty or their innocence based on the information that's presented to me. And so for me, the critical question is not whether or not someone has a particular bias, but whether or not they're able to make a decision, even if that decision is impacted by their bias, whether or not they're, not, they're able to reach a fair decision based on the evidence presented to them. And we very rarely get to that specific question in a number of jury selections. Um, we very rarely got to that question in this case, I think. And you saw people disqualified because of the existence of an opinion, the existence of a bias. Uh, and I think that was particularly pronounced with the jurors who were then questioned after the settlement was announced. Uh, when we had the settlement announced, Judge Cahill decided that he was going to cut people who had heard about it and who had a strong opinion about it. And uh, I think he, he was a bit trigger happy on that one. 
Another juror that stands out was juror number 76. He was an African-American man who told the judge of his personal experience of seeing police officers drive their cruisers around his neighborhood, blaring the song, Another One Bites the Dust, when a black man was recently shot. I stayed right around in the area where this happened, this incident happened. And so on numerous occasions, if, if someone in the area got shot, or someone went to jail. I mean, you know, it was known for like the police to ride through the neighborhood with another one bites the dust. And, and you know, and it's like, they just like, they antagonized us. Uh, being a black man in America, uh, I experienced racism on a day-to-day -day basis. Obviously a memory like that is bound to impact your views of police, yes? Uh, he also mentioned, I think, um, that he had questions, lots of lingering questions, uh, about why cases involving the deaths of black men at the hands of police officers often turned out the way they did. And specifically, Minneapolis and the Twin Cities has had a number of cases in recent years where individual law enforcement officers have either not been charged or been charged and found not guilty. And specifically in Minneapolis, we have convicted uh, a police officer for the murder of an individual. And it so happened in that case that the police officer was black, he was Somali, and the victim was a white woman. And so lots of individual residents of the Twin Cities and a lot of the Twin Cities communities have lingering questions and doubts, much like juror number, uh, potential juror number 76. What are the specific reasons that you would want to be on the jury? Because me as a black man, you see a lot of uh, black people get killed and no one's held accountable for it. And you wonder why or what was the decisions. And so with this, maybe I'll be in the room to know why. So that's kind of what the conversation was about. And he was very honest and I think forthright in his responses in the conversation he had with Eric Nelson and with the court uh, and with the prosecutor. Um, and, you know, he kind of laid it out all there, um, which is refreshing. It's what you want to see. But the thing that struck out to me, I think, wasn't even so much that he was able to relate his lived experiences. But when he was asked the ultimate question, right, when he was asked, would he be able to set aside those perspectives, to set aside his opinions, and would he be able to render a verdict that was based solely on the evidence that was presented to him at trial? He said yes. He said he carried these biases, he carried these opinions, but he would endeavor to be fair to Derek Chauvin, and if the defense proved their case and he believed that Derek Chauvin was not guilty, he'd be able to say he was not guilty. And despite all of that, he was kicked for cause. It seems like what you're trying to say here, Andrew, is that in trying to seat juries that are fair and impartial by probing them on their biases beforehand, that the courts might actually be doing just the opposite. So is it more that would-be jurors just shouldn't be as forthright in their answers, maybe just cut to the fact that they could be fair and impartial without putting the whole backstory on record? It's difficult to, to want, as an attorney, it's difficult to say that you want potential jurors to not be honest. 
and and I think kind of the catch twenty two for someone like me, especially as a black defense attorney who is representing individuals who are predominantly persons of color, um, typically African American men. It's it's difficult for me to be in court and be picking a jury, and have one person of color in the entire prospective jury pool, and have that person be excused because they just happen to be black and because they're black they're more likely to have had negative run-ins with law enforcement or they're more likely to have been systematically disadvantaged by the system and report some kind of negative impact with the court system legal system etc it's frustrating when that happens but despite that it would be really difficult for me to sit here and tell you that i would encourage um, any juror, any prospective juror, to not be forthcoming and honest, because I think that makes the system itself wholly unreliable, wholly unfair. Um, and I, I certainly, I don't think I, I, I don't think I'd gravitate to the words that at all. Uh, I think there's a question as to what we can potentially do to improve the system as it is. It should be pointed out that two of the black jurors in this case are not African American, but are immigrants from other countries. So could that be another way in which the defense could be trying to select for, shall we say, a certain kind of juror of color, one that might have different lived experiences than someone who grew up here? Yeah, um, and it's something that comes into play, I think, far more often than folks may realize. You know, we talked about lived experiences before, right? And the lived experience of an immigrant, especially an immigrant who may have been born elsewhere, and raised among a population where they looked, everyone looked like you, has a very different childhood, right? Has very different expectations and experiences than um, someone who was born in this country who is black, um, who in trying to, let's say, survive a, a tough situation may end up going to a predominantly white high school, right? Those are very different lived experiences. And certainly me growing up in Jamaica, I had a very different experience growing up with law enforcement than if I was growing up here. But that has prompted a number of conversations with my family members, with people here. And I think what I can say to you about those conversations where I'm talking to immigrants about their views of African-Americans is that you have large immigrant communities sometimes that see themselves apart from your African-American population. They came to this country, they worked hard, they made something of themselves, and they see African-Americans as having failed to take advantage of the natural advantage that they would have had by being born here. And I would opine that part of that reason is because when he sees George Floyd on the ground, yes, he's seeing a black man, yes, he's seeing an African-American man, but he's not seeing himself. He's seeing himself as someone separate and apart from George Floyd, an immigrant, who does not have the same lived experiences of George Floyd. So just to bring this conversation back around to where we began, how do you see this issue of bias and jury selection playing out going forward? Do you think the public has faith in the way that it was handled? Uh, I, I think people will be, at the end of the day, people will be far more forgiving of this jury because it is far more diverse uh, than what you would typically expect. Um, I, I think the conversations that we've just had about prospective juror 76 and about other prospective jurors and about some of the inherent flaws in the system um, will still ultimately rub people the wrong way. But this, you know, it's I think this, like a lot of things, is outcome determinative. Right. Uh, a lot of people want to see a conviction. 
And if we get a conviction, I think people will forget any criticisms they may have had of the jury selection process. Uh, I, I think if you see an acquittal, though, then there will be, I think, a, a lot of serious questions raised in the aftermath of an acquittal about what the how the jury was constituted and what the process for the picking of that jury was. Andrew Gordon is a public defender and the deputy director for community legal services at the Legal Rights Center in Minneapolis. Andrew, thanks so much again for speaking with me today. Thank you very much. Uncommon Law was produced by myself, Adam Allington, along with the help of Marissa Horn. Josh Block is the executive producer of Bloomberg Industry Group Podcasts. Thanks again for listening. My name is David Schultz, and I'm here to announce On the Merits, a new podcast from Bloomberg Law that brings you everything you need to know about the biggest legal stories of the week, coupled with smart interviews and analysis on a variety of topics, such as the incoming Biden administration's judicial priorities. So I think diversity is, is kind of the watchword here. We'll also keep our eyes on the Supreme Court. Now everyone is on Briar Watch. We're all watching to see when or if Justice Breyer is going to step down. You'll hear voices and perspectives from across the legal industry, including reporters and editors, attorneys, legal scholars, general counsel. But lest you think this podcast is all just news you can use, from time to time we stumble on a court docket or legal opinion that, for whatever reason, just piques our interest. And he started this opinion, 224th of it, citing the Passchendaele battle is one of the largest battles of World War One. Um, that seems like a strange way to start off an opinion on corporate law. You can download On the Merits wherever you get your podcasts.